0: Have a month to sing them, right? A month—that's sad to me. We should sing them in July for sure. Sing them all year. Christ came. Anyway, I'm not going to preach a Christmas message to you. <laughs> <laughs> that I am, right? I, we need to. We only have four weeks to preach Christmas messages. but We're going to preach from Second Samuel 12 this morning, beginning in verse 13. Um, this is. Right at the end, and I really want to bridge here, Nathan confronting David with his sin with Bathsheba, and David's response to it, and then the immediate consequence, and that's what we're going to be looking at in the message this morning, is the consequence, and you know, the Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. There's a sense in that phrase uh, that indicates that the sin itself Is its punishment. Quite often, that is the case. That when you get the sin, what you wanted was the pleasure that that sin promised. But when you actually get the sin, the pleasure is immediately gone. And that the consequences are what you get. Guilt is part of that consequence. But as we see here, there was another consequence that amounts to chastisement that God told David was going to happen and then did happen immediately. Now, I would assume, based on this, the fact that this baby is never named, no name is given. I would assume that the baby became sick within the first week of its life and did not make it to the eighth day when it would be circumcised and an official name given to the baby. So I believe that the baby was born and died all in the same week. That's my assumption. But the Bible doesn't tell us that. The Bible doesn't offer an explanation of why the baby is not given a name. It does not tell us how long the baby lived before it became sick what we do know is, well, what we'll read here. Let's stand together and we'll read 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, and reading to verse 25. These are the words of God. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Howbeit, Because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. And Nathan departed unto his house. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted, and went in and lay all night upon the earth. And the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth, but he would not, neither did he eat bread with them. And it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spake unto him, and he would not hearken unto our voice. How will he then vex himself if we tell him that the child is dead? But when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said unto his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he required, they set bread before him, and he did eat. Then Then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Now didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive. But when the child was dead, now didst rise and eat bread. And he said, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went in unto her and lay with her, and she bare a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him, and he sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet, and he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Gracious Lord, as we see more of you in a passage like this, I pray that we would long to know you as you've made yourself known in Scripture. And I pray that when we know you, that we would love you, that we would honor you. And as we consider this particular passage, Lord, that you would, would open it to us in a special way, that we might understand the way that you work with us and what we ought to do in response. Please help me, Lord, that I would make the message very plain. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated that My message this morning is encouragement for the repentant. Encouragement for the repentant. One of the hardest things for any of us to do ever is to face the consequences of our sin. When we have sinned, and we know that we have sinned, there is an immediate guilt that attaches to us. That tells us that what we did was wrong. That guilt gives us a very strong impulse to hide. We've examined that in previous messages. That desire to hide what we have done because we are afraid of the consequences. We're afraid. Of what this might result in. And if people know. And it's a, an amazing thing. When we have sin, There seems to be almost a bottomless pit. Of possible consequences. Like there seems to be no end. No boundary. Like the boundaries are broken down. The possible things that might happen to us. The humiliation, the shame, the disgrace, and then other things, lives that are hurt, harmed by what we've done. Our own lives that are made uncomfortable by the consequences, the real effects of our sin. It frightens us. We have the sensation that we're on a runaway train, that we pull on the brakes, but the brakes have a mind of their own. They're not working. And the train, meanwhile, is picking up momentum. We feel like we're in a hot air balloon that was tethered and that broke free from its tetherings, from its moorings. And we float. We don't know. We're at the mercy of the wind. And the, a- the atmosphere. And we feel that sense of being untethered. Like the anchor is lost. And there's nothing to hold us in place. And what will become of us? Where will this thing go? What will become of me? Who will find out? Will my reputation ever recover? And what will be the consequence? And Of course, part of fear and what really gives fear its its teeth is the unknown element of what what will happen to me, what will I become of me because of this thing. That that fear of the unknown is what gives fear that choking sensation. And judgment will come like a wolf on the fold, and we're quite certain that the carnage. Will be horrified. We imagine the worst possible consequences. I would guess that we've all been in that situation. I remember when I was a kid in school, and the teacher would um, say, You know, pull me out quietly out of the class and send me to the principal's office. Believe me, it rarely, rarely, rarely ever happened where I had to go to the principal's office because I was such a good boy. But when I had to go to the principal's office, there was that, you know, like you start running through your mind what the possible reasons for this visit might be. I think I know, but I don't know for sure. And then I'm thinking of all kinds of, like i am scrutinizing my past, All of a sudden, did I do something? Did I do something extra bad? Did he find out what I did? You know how that is. Now Maybe it's happened to you as an adult, too. You know, the pastor says to you, hey, could I talk to you after church? And now you're just like, "Oh, oh, please, get it over with. Don't ever get it over with. Make the sermon last forever. No, don't worry. I'm a cuddly teddy bear. You never have to worry about anything when it comes to that kind of stuff. I remember, though, when I was a lay member of uh, the church and someone was brought up on church discipline, I remember the sense that that could be me. I could do that very thing. we, We have this, I mean, an aversion to seeing people get in trouble. It's uncomfortable. For us to see that happen. Sometimes it may seem like the cost is too high that you cannot bear it. That you'll be crushed and broken and will not survive. I imagine that this is the way David felt after his sin with Bathsheba. I wonder if he was not reminded of this terrible sin all over again, afresh. Every time, another one of his sons died tragically, prematurely. Besides this unnamed baby, we know that three more of David's sons would die prematurely. And all in disgrace. Amnon, after the rape of his sister, was killed by an Absalom in revenge. Absalom, in his attempted coup, takeover of David's kingdom was killed by Joab in the field. And Adonijah who also attempted to usurp the throne and was killed. It was a heavy price to pay for one night of pleasure. We might struggle to see the proportion Does not God punish us according to our sin. Don't forget that in a moment of clarity, as Nathan set a um, theoretical case before David of a man stealing his neighbor's sheep, that David, in that moment, in a clear sense of justice, pronounced his own sentence, declaring that that man shall pay fourfold for his sin. And so God required David four sons for the life of Uriah. It would seem that David faced judgment without mercy. As James 2.13 says it, for he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. Wasn't that David's own judgment against the, the man who's the, the, the um, man that Nathan made up and stole his neighbor's sheep? That he did it without pity. He did it without pity. In David's mind, that made it greater. And even so, David had Uriah killed without pity the weight of his sin was surely terrible surely too much for David to bear as we work through First and Second Samuel I have labored to remind you that the point in all of these stories is to teach us not about men not to elevate men not to magnify men but to teach us about God and to show us what God is like by showing the the failures and faults as well as the, the faithfulness of certain men and to see God interacting with his creation, dealing with man as man does something heroic and does something great. And then as that same man like David fails and falls into immorality and sin and to see the way God responds. Now this is always, and you know, again, I, I believe that an important ministry of preaching is to teach you how to approach the Word of God and how to understand it so that you are better able to understand it for yourself. I don't want to create dependencies in the church. We're we're supposed to, uh, through the ministry of preaching, be bringing you up unto perfect men, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that there ought to be a maturing that is taking place Through the word of God. By the way. That's why. Though a message ought to be simple. And understandable. There also ought to be an element. A degree of reaching for. The truth. That's taking place through the preaching. Because you're trying to grow up. Into maturity. All of that to say. That when we're understanding the word of God. When we're looking at it. Our question should always be. What does this tell me about God? What do I learn about God here? And so, as we've gone through these histories of different men, sometimes even great men, who behave like men at times, we get to see the way God is. Now, anyone who wants to argue that the grace of God is missing from the Old Testament proves their ignorance of the Old Testament. You know, it's popular to say it this way. Tell me you haven't read the Old Testament without telling me you haven't read the Old Testament. Right? Uh, If you say that the God of the Old Testament is not a gracious God, you have not spent appropriate amounts of time to make that judgment. You need to read the Old Testament because here in this passage... We see a gracious God responding to a wicked sin. Now, I want to say it this way. That sometimes the grace of God shows up in the consequences for our sin. God is very clear with David that it's because the enemies of the Lord Blaspheme God because of David's sin. That this child will not die. Because God is jealous for the glory of his own name, and he will not have it said that I had that I played favorites with this man. He was my guy. So the sin that he committed is horrific by any standards. Anywhere. You can go among the most rabid atheists and they will still tell you that adultery and murder to cover it up are wicked abominations. Only the absolutely most depraved people anywhere would say, it. <laughs> by any cultural norm, this is wicked sin. And God made it very clear. That he was going to deal with. There is grace. In God's judgment. On David. But. We do see. God being gracious. In astounding ways. Throughout the Old Testament. But especially. We see that the men of the Old Testament. Understood. That the God that they were worshiping. And the God that they were serving is a gracious God. And I want to show you how that's evident in this story here. Because David doesn't resign himself to suffer God's wrath and judgment. Nathan announced the immediate consequences of David's adultery. The child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. And then verse 15 says, the Lord struck child. That's a hard statement. And in response, David did not resign to his fate. He pleaded with God (laughs) intensely. Apparently, David thought that it was appropriate for him to plead with God for mercy despite God's announcement of a sentence against this baby. Against David. David pleaded so intensely, in fact, that his servants feared for his life. Verse 17, the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth, but he would not, neither did he eat bread with them. And when after seven days of this, the child died His servants were beyond perplexed. Verse 18, And the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spake unto him, and he would not hearken unto our voice. How will he then vex himself if we tell him that the child is dead? They literally were afraid that David would kill himself. He was so distraught. The Hebrew word, uh, for vex is the word ra, which is the uh, oreah, which is the Hebrew word for evil, that he would do himself harm, that he would do an evil thing to himself. In verse 19, David noticed his servants whispering among themselves, and he guessed correctly that this meant that his child was dead. When his servants confirmed it, Notice how the story changes. The storyteller wants us to feel the desperation of David's prayers and to share the concern and confusion of David's servants. It makes sense to us that David was distraught over the sickness of this child. But it would make more sense to us that if he was distraught when the child was sick, That he would be unconsolable when the child died. But that's where David shocks everyone. Verse 20 tells us that he arose from the earth. And washed and anointed himself. And changed his apparel. And came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he came to his own house. And when he required they set bread before him. And he did eat. So here's David. For seven days, he has laid face down in the dirt. He has not gotten up to bathe. He has not gotten up to eat. He has not gotten up to sleep. He has poured out his heart in intense prayer for mercy. Prayed and prayed and prayed. And then he notices. The servants whispering among themselves. And he guesses. That the baby is dead. And David gets up. Takes a shower. Splashes on some cologne. Goes to the temple. To worship the tabernacle. To worship God. Offer sacrifice. Comes back. Says to the cook. I'm hungry. Let's eat. And he eats. And his servants are watching this and they don't know what to think. What does this mean? Why are you doing this? How could he bounce back so quickly? And so his servants need to know what this is all about. Then said his servants unto him, what thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive, but when the child was dead... Thou didst rise and eat bread. It's all backwards. Listen to David's answer. Verse 22. And he said, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he's dead. Wherefore should I fast? And I bring him back again, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me? That's what David said. Who can tell whether God will be gracious? To me? David did not say that because he doubted the grace of God, he said that because he believed in the grace of God. He believed more firmly in the grace of God. He believed that the God that he was dealing with was a God of grace. More than he believed anything else, he believed that. And so David did the only logical thing to do if you believe that God is gracious. Believe it. David prayed because he thought to himself that maybe, just maybe, God had announced what the sentence would be because he wanted David to pray. David thought it would not be out of the ordinary. It would not be outside the question that God would do this so that i will pray intensely and so david prayed intensely in response it goes against though all our sensibilities when it comes to prayer and when it comes to prayer it seems to me that of all the things that god has given us as christian duties it seems to me that we have more hang-ups about prayer Than anything else and we hear more things given to us as if it was the law of the Medes and the Persians Which cannot be altered when it comes to prayer You know, you're never supposed to pray for anything that God didn't tell you to pray for And you're never supposed to pray for anything that God has already promised to give you, right? And you're not supposed to pray for anything that you don't see in scripture and we're not supposed to pray outside of the will of God, right? And so we have this like a tight rope of what we can actually pray. According to some, when I listen to them talk about it, we are restricted and constricted in what we might pray for. <clears throat> Sometimes so constricted by these limitations placed on our prayer life that we are paralyzed in prayer. Listen. The God of the Bible does not work behind the counter at the local DMV. All right? He is not the lady at the DMV who gets, I think, I'm convinced, gets paid a bonus If she can tell you, no, I can't do this, you have to go get this obscure piece of paperwork, right? Go get that and bring it back. And the more trips that they can make you make, I think that the bonus just goes up through the roof. God is not a bureaucrat making you fill out all your forms in triplicate and make sure you get all the right forms. Did you get the OMBD? 72, huh? you need that. You can't even talk to me without that one. That's not how it works with God. Yeah. It's not how it works with God. He isn't waiting to hear your request so that he can spot it down. He's not. He isn't a Dutch schoolmaster flogging you for anything less than a verbatim answer. There is a wideness, a broadness in God's grace. Oh, but you say, Pastor, I'm going to shoot you down on this one. Because I noticed that God did not answer David's prayer. The baby died. Ah. That's the kind of rigidity that adds so much misery to people's lives when they are under chastisement. And listen, folks, all things being equal, chances are you'll find yourself under chastisement at some point. And it's the people who have been especially harsh and rigid that suffer the most when they find themselves or suspect that they may be, in fact, under chastisement from God. Let's sit back for a moment and let's remember, let's rehearse to ourselves that the glory of the church is that it is a gathering of sinners who have all found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Which means, if I can interpret that for you, that God is not giving us what we deserve. That God has taken a stance in which, rather be than being just with you, He has determined to be just with with your sin by laying it on Jesus and causing him to suffer your death, your punishment in your place. Now there's a place of course for us to deal hardly at times with sin in order to correct it. But there is a spirit that is alive in our world, in fact, not just alive, it's rioting in a city near you that is demanding a very exacting kind of justice. The popular thing today is karma. Karma is this supposedly inexorable law of justice and repayment by which every sin is met with an exacting consequence and every good deed met with an exacting reward. That is the kind of philosophy that believers should say, thank God I'm not an unbeliever. I don't have to believe in that because what God has called us to believe in, and believe in it not because it's a not because it's a, a, a mystery, not because it's made up, not not because it's a fiction, but because it is the God who reveals Himself in the pages of Scripture. What God has called us to believe in is His mercy and His grace. And every one of us, as believers in Christ, every one of us have staked our eternity on the grace and mercy of our God. In other words, we have banked on it that God is not going to give us what we deserve in the last day, that He is going to give us instead something that we do not deserve. I have not seen or ear heard neither have entered into the hearts of men the things that God has prepared for those that love him. And we believe that we have a part in that. So don't be critical of David. Let me point out the end of the passage in verses 24 and 25 and what God inserts there at the end of this part of the story. And David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went in unto her and lay with her. And she bare a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. You see that? At the beginning of 2 Samuel 12, the Lord sent Nathan to David. In the middle of 2 Samuel 12, the Lord struck the baby. And here, at the end of this part of the story, the Lord loved the baby of David and Bathsheba. But that's not all. It seems to me that the 25th verse is saying that Nathan renamed the baby Jedidiah because of the Lord. Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. The way the narrator tells it, you would think that immediately after the baby died, Bathsheba conceived and Solomon was born. You would think that. But if you consider 1 Chronicles 3 and verse 5, the Bible tells us that actually there were four sons born to David in Bathsheba. And these were born unto him in Jerusalem, Shimea, and Shobab, and Nathan, and Solomon, four of Bathsheba. So we see then that Solomon was the youngest of those four. And yet, God skips directly to the youngest and tells us, That he loved the youngest. Why does God tell us that immediately? Was it that it took time for God's sourness, God's disillusionment with David to wear off? That God was in a dark mood, you know, kind of like mom after she spanked the kids, and now she's going to make them suffer for a while before she can say a pleasant word to them, and she's going to carry on a bad attitude towards the kids because she's mad at them. So God was mad at David for a while. That would be, I think, the way some might take this, but I don't think so. I think God wants us to know immediately How much it pleased him that David prayed so intensely for mercy. Dale Davis points it out this way. Who can imagine how gracious a God of all grace wants to be to us in our sins and messes? For David, grace is not a doctrinal concept, but the peculiar bent of God's nature. I say this. To many in this room who have made a mess in your lives by your sin. Especially in your former life before you came to Christ. You've made a mess of things. It is of course necessary that you would repent and humble yourself. And face the consequences of your sin. Of course, absolutely. You must say, Lord... If this is what you've decided, I accept. But that does not require you to resign yourself to the worst possible consequences. It does not require that. Nothing in Scripture would teach you to resign in despair. In fact, the gospel would teach us otherwise. Because what is it that you're crying out to God for when you ask Him to save you from your sins? The worst possible consequences for your sins are not in this life. They are in the life that is to come. The worst possible consequences for your sin would be eternity spent in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And when you ask the Lord to save you, you are asking Him to deliver you from the worst possible consequences which you have earned for your sin. You are asking Him to be merciful to you and not punish you according to to your sin. That's what you're asking him to do. Now if we would do that when it comes to the eternal, why would we not do that when it comes to the temporal? We have no ground in ourselves to expect mercy from God. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I claim. Isn't that the sinner's prayer? God, be merciful to me, a sinner? And isn't that the prayer that God hears? Didn't Jesus make that abundantly clear when the Pharisee stood and prayed all of his worth and all of his merits? God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I tithe twice in the week. I give alms to the poor. But the publican, knowing his own sin and sinfulness, would not lift so much as his eyes to heaven, but beat upon his breast and cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And did not Jesus use that? To demonstrate the acceptability of that kind of prayer. That we would pray for mercy. Plead with God to be merciful. Not to give us everything that our sin deserves. We as believers understand that when it comes to the ultimate things. We understand that when it comes to the eternal things, but we are reluctant to pray for it when it comes to temporal things, when it comes to the consequences, the immediate consequences for our sins. And I'm saying to you that David knew instinctively, despite God's announcement that his son would die, David knew instinctively that the right response was to plead with God to be merciful, to plead with him for mercy. So why is it that we look to God to deliver us from this terrible penalty of our sin but we don't ask Him to deliver us from the smaller consequences. If we think that we can believe the gospel and that faith and repentance that receives God's pardoning grace frees us from death and hell, why wouldn't we hope and pray for even more mercy? Do you think that God ran out of mercy when He gave you that mercy? To deliver you from the penalty of your sin? Oh, yes, it's true. You don't deserve his mercy. That's the point. What, what do you ask God for that you deserve to have? Because that's probably the thing that you've made an idol of. Right there. The fact that you think you deserve this and that's why you're asking for it. That would actually, in my mind, in my understanding, that would limit the blessings that God would pour out on you. Because God is delighted to give us what we do not deserve. Shouldn't we be encouraged at least to ask if he doesn't answer our prayer, if he doesn't give us the mercy we ask, he's still good. But why wouldn't we ask? Again, sometimes we're so frozen by our doctrines that we forget to see the loving God who taught us those doctrines. When we sin, God requires us to repent. When we face the consequences for our sins, God requires us to submit under his chastisement. And yet, none of this prevents us from crying out for mercy. David's response to God's judgment encourages those who repent to plead with God for mercy rather than simply accept the worst possible consequences. Because we know that Even in wrath, God remembers mercy. I have four encouragements for you, and I'll be finished with the message. First of all, we find an encouragement here to repent. And repentance is, to me, I don't understand our reluctance to repent. I don't understand those who would teach against repentance or who would say that a believer should never repent. That, that doesn't make any sense to me, especially when you consider, number one, what Scripture says about it, and number two, what repentance really involves. Listen, repentance is what God wants. When you sin, God wants repentance. Really, I think a, a significant difference between King Saul and King David was both of them... <coughs> Similarly, both of them came to a crisis moment. Both of them sinned in an exceptional way. The difference was that Saul made excuses and justified his sin. And only repented as kind of a last option to get Samuel off his back. And David, as soon as he was confronted with his sin, said, I have sinned. That's a, that's a pretty significant difference. But this is the thing, folks. This is what God wants from you. <coughs> Repent. Now. Yeah. Okay, I remember when I was a kid and I did something wrong and I didn't want my mom and dad to see or find out about it. And so I would hide it and conceal it. Alright? I remember doing that. I did it more than once. Alright. Um, I'm sure that a couple of you were listening. All right, we've been there, so we understand this um, fear of getting caught, okay? And the fear of getting caught is a fear of the consequences what mom and dad might do to me when they find out what I did. All right. But we have in Scripture, God has laid out for us how he handles sinners who come to him and admit that what they did was wrong and seek forgiveness for it. I mean, the Bible could not be more plain on this. God does not cast us away. He forgives us. In fact, the Bible says it that he is Faithful and just to forgive us our sins. I can't really wrap my brain around what is just about God's forgiveness. But he is just to forgive us our sins. He is righteous. He is good to forgive us our sins. He assures us of this. Over and over and over again. A God who is of infinite power and infinite strength. Who is only restricted or restrained by himself and his own nature. He tells you that he will remove your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. In other words, he will remove it an infinite distance from you. He tells you that he will take your sins and cast them behind his back and he will remember them no more. A God who never forgets forgets your sin. That's power. Because it's hard for you to forget what someone has done wrong to you. But God forgets That's what he tells you. He calls for your repentance. There should be no objection to this from any believer. Repentance involves an acknowledgement that what I did was wrong. That I was wrong to do it. That I did it because I wanted to do it. Not because I lost control of myself temporarily. It was not temporary insanity. I chose to do this. Confess it, in other words, as sin. And then repentance means that I turn from it, that I take definite steps to ensure that I will not do that again. That's repentance. David shows us what this looks like in regards to Bathsheba. We have a record of it in the 51st Psalm, where David said, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Now David describes this. This is what his repentance sounded like before God. Paul also tells the New Testament believer what it looks like when we have repented of our sin. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10... For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. In all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Those are the attitudes of repentance that Paul raises up before us. Listen, don't play games with your sin. God calls for you to confess it and forsake it and promises mercy to you if you will. Don't cover your sin. God says you will not prosper. Why would you withhold from God the one thing that he's given you for your own good, for your own cleansing from sin? The second thing I see here in this passage is an encouragement to pray. Yes, I believe that we should pray according to the will of God. And yes, I believe that God's will is revealed in his word. So yes, I believe that we should pray what God has taught us to pray. But I also believe that God has given us a lot more latitude in his word to pray for things that we need and desire than what we sometimes will admit. As a father, I would be deeply grieved if my children had a desperate need for something but did not come and ask me for it. Even if they didn't know that I could give it even if they thought that maybe I couldn't. I have to think that this is the natural instinct of a father, and furthermore, I have to think that the natural instincts we have as fathers came to us from our Heavenly Father, who teaches us what a father does, and is a father to the fatherless as well. Has he not called for us to make our request known to him? Be careful for nothing, Philippians 4, verse 6 says, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Does he not teach us to call to him and promise us that he'll answer us and show us great and mighty things Which we know not. Does he not say that? Does he not do for us exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think? Don't you love those great big words? Exceeding abundantly above all that we ask. Dale Davis illustrated with a story of one of the philosophers in the court of Alexander the Great. Apparently, this philosopher had uh, a slew of financial problems, kind of a history of financial problems. And so one day, he decided to appeal directly to Alexander the Great for relief. Alexander sent him to his treasurer with a letter instructing the treasurer to give the man whatever he wanted. And so when the man arrived at the treasurer's, he asked for 10,000 pounds. Now, I don't know what that would be in today's money. I would assume in the millions. He asked for that. The audacity. The treasurer wouldn't give it to him. Refused. No way. I'm not doing this. This is not what Alexander meant. And then the treasurer went to Alexander and told him what the man had asked for. And Alexander listened patiently while his treasurer explained all the reasons why this request should not be granted. And then, when the man had finished, when the treasurer had finished, Alexander said, Now, Go give him the 10,000 pounds, he said. He said, I like the way this man thinks. He has shown me singular honor by the largeness of his request. He shows the high idea he has conceived, both of my superior wealth and my royal munificence. In other words... Alexander was saying, he thinks I can do that, so I'm going to. I know this is like as close to a name it and claim it sermon (laughs) you're ever going to hear. A prosperity message from Pastor Melanie right here. Okay? When you are asking the Lord, when you ask Him, when you cry out, From your need. You are letting it be known. That you depend on him. That you trust him. That you believe that he can. Meet your need. What could be wrong with that? What could be wrong with that? Do we not rely on him? Do we not depend on him? Third we find an encouragement here to plead for mercy. As I reminded you, the Bible never, never requires you to resign yourself to the full measure of the consequences of your sin. You're not required just to resign to it. You're not. You're not. That does not mean that you should become hostile towards God because He is has consequences or chastises you for your sin. doesn't mean that. But it also doesn't mean that you do not have any scriptural authority or warrant to cry out to God, please God, be merciful. I deserve way worse. But please don't make me pay that way. I'll accept whatever you send as being from you and being part of your goodness. But Lord, if you could minimize the punishment, I would be grateful. Whatever chastisement God sees fit to send your way, you should receive humbly and with gratitude. I mean, he says, what son doesn't receive chastisement? If you can sin without chastisement, then God says you're a bastard and not a son. That's what he says. But that does not prevent you from pleading intensely with God for relief. And when you plead with the Lord, don't plead your merits. Don't say... I mean, Lord, I know I did bad, but I wasn't that bad. I mean, I know I committed adultery with Bathsheba, but I didn't sneak around about it. And I mean, I know that I killed her husband, but, you know, I'm taking good care of her, though. Don't plead your merits. Don't do that. Plead your need, plead your sin. Plead his grace and mercy. Plead his goodness, not yours. Some of you have suffered many long years with wayward children. You've afflicted your own soul for the mistakes that you've made. And you've often taken responsibility for your own failures as well as theirs. You've resigned yourself to the idea that they'll never live up to what you had hoped for them. Or what they might have been for Christ. You've even accepted the alienation in your relationship. As a necessary consequence for your failure. But I'm asking you. Have you pleaded with the Lord to repair the situation? Have you pleaded with them for mercy? In regards to...